Good morning. My name is Sabrina. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and 18. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John 13, starting with verse 36. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool through fourth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked. I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even knew me. John chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. But one of the household slaves of the high, high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Hi again. It's good to see you guys. Um, it's good to open God's Word together this morning. Often I think our bodies are here, like our bodies are here, but our minds or our hearts can be elsewhere. And I just want to acknowledge that this morning and invite you to take some deep breaths and to appreciate the fact that God actually wants to speak with you. God wants to be with you here this morning. So in acknowledgement of that and in the hopes that we can also be present here with the Lord, let's take a moment to be still and to know that God is God. Lord, we thank you for the breath in our bodies, the life in our spirits. Renew us and revive us again, we pray. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. So about 20 years ago, a friend of mine, her name was Kelsey, asked me to sing in her wedding. We'd become friends while working together at a Christian summer camp, and in addition to being a doc daddy, which was a really cool job to have at camp, I was a doc daddy, I also led camp worship that summer, strumming my guitar, singing songs, recording some sets, with John Tesh. Anybody know John Tesh? Does that ring a bell? Anybody know him? Okay, you gotta be older to know John Tesh. Um, he was uh, off the radar even back in the day, but John Tesh came and played some songs with us. We, we, he recorded a cute couple things, you know, just like normal camp stuff. So background, I come from a musical family. We are not the Von Trapps, but the Von Webbles have been known to sing at a few Christmas concerts and perhaps even mix, mix in a couple special musics for some church services. These are my two brothers singing. Um, in church. Now, to be clear, all of my siblings have formal music training, 
They have had voice lessons, what have you, serious stuff. They've been in regional musicals. One of them has even been a professional stage performer. This is my brother Aaron. Uh, people paid him money <laughs> to sing and to dance, which is crazy, right? But there he was doing these amazing things. And I was nowhere near that level of singer-performer, but I like to pretend. So when Kelsey asked me to sing in her wedding, I said yes, and I learned the song, and I felt pretty good about it. The week of the wedding, my voice decided to take a vacation. I don't know if I was sick or I just lost my voice, but man, I sounded bad. Like, I was guttural, raspy. Imagine someone who's been smoking for 30 years, like that's what I was producing out of my mouth. I sold a few days before the wedding so it would get better, right? Right. It did not get better. On the drive down to Arkansas, I started to panic. I could hardly talk. How was I supposed to sing? And this was Kelsey's wedding. It was supposed to be her perfect day, and I was going to butcher it. So on the drive, I called one of my more talented brothers, and I begged him. I mean, I begged him to come sing for me, but he could not do it. I was on my own. So I did my best, and I butchered it. <laughs> I even knocked the song down two full steps, and I still could not sing the notes. To make it even worse, I didn't plug the cord of my guitar all the way into my guitar. So the only thing projecting through the speakers that day was my awful, horrible, guttural voice. So mix a whale sound with like an eagle sound, and you're like kind of getting the picture of what it sounded like, and I was mortified. Kelsey was so gracious about it, but there is no getting around the truth. For the four minutes that I was singing, the entire room endured agony and awkwardness for everyone, especially for me. When all the chips were down, when it was the moment I wanted to be at my best, I failed. And I don't like reliving that moment. I felt embarrassment and regret and shame and self-doubt, and it's had actually a big impact on my life. In the last 20 years since that moment, I have only led music a handful of times. And when I do, the fear is just like right there. Failure comes in all shapes and sizes. We know this. Governments fail. Banks fail, as we've seen this week. Churches fail. People fail. I know that you have been there. You have failed. Perhaps you submitted poetry to a publication and it got rejected. Perhaps you got an F on a math test once. Perhaps you reached out to form a new friendship and got ghosted. Maybe you started a small business or a record label or a podcast and it just crashed and burned. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you got dumped by a girlfriend or boyfriend. Maybe you got cut from the team. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you no longer talk to your parents or a relative. Maybe you're underwater at work. Maybe your kids are making bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. And all of this can lead to the feeling that you are failing. You are failing as a spouse or as a coworker, you're failing as a Christian person, you're failing as a human being in the world. And after time, the narrative can shift in a really critical way. It's not that we've failed at a task or an assignment, it's that we are a failure. All of a sudden, we are in deep shame territory. Brene Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling of believing that we are flawed the intensely painful feeling of believing that we ourselves are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and unworthy of connection and unworthy of belonging. Shame anchors us to our worst moments, 
something that we've experienced, something that we've done, something that we've failed to do, and it says this, this that you've done, this ugliness, this failure, it defines you. It makes you unworthy of connection, which explains why I never lead music anymore. I'm already anticipating the next failure, the next horrible moment, the next painful experience. And when we feel this way, we disengage. We stop trying. We stop caring. Shame tells us to hide and to pretend and to never, ever, ever again reveal the flawed part of ourselves. Left alone, shame will destroy us, which is why we need to talk about it. This morning, we're going to continue our series uh, that we're calling The Hour of Glory, and we're making our way through the Gospel of John. As Katie mentioned last week, Jesus and the disciples have reached their moment of truth. They've reached the hour of glory for them, when all the chips are down and we get to find out what these guys are really made of. Our story today, again, centers on the disciple Peter. Last week, we saw Peter's chest thumping, right, when he first told Jesus not to wash his feet. That's beneath Jesus. Oh, but then, like, wash my whole body, right, when he figured out, like, that was the deal. He had a lot of passion, we saw last week, but he didn't have a lot of understanding. (laughs) He had a lot of passion, uh, but maybe not a lot of understanding. At the end of the night, Jesus made a chilling statement to his followers. Jesus said, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave. And none of the disciples are going to be able to come with him. I'm going to leave, and you guys can't follow. And in the verses that Sabrina read for us, Peter blurts out in front of everyone, But why can't I come now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. Jesus, stop doubting me. I'm with you. To the very end, if that's what it takes. I'm ready. I'll die for you. Jesus replies, Die for me, Peter? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And that must have felt like a punch to the gut for Peter. Jesus, no, like, you can't mean that. I would never, ever do that. I'm with you. I'm ready to the death. I'm in. And a few hours later, another disciple, Judas, betrayed Jesus and led soldiers and officials to the garden to arrest his master. And Peter, brave and bold, true to his word, slashed off the ears of one of the soldiers with a sword. Jesus heals the man's ear. Peter, you don't understand, right? And then taken away, arrested. The disciples are scattered, they're confused, they leave, they're terrified. But Simon Peter, brave and bold, and another disciple, they follow Jesus, close on his heels. He wants to be near his rabbi, his teacher, his savior, his Lord. I'm ready, I'll die for you, Jesus. So Peter enters the high priest's courtyard, just outside the doors where Jesus is being questioned and slapped and interrogated. He wants to be close. Maybe he can do something. Maybe he could help. I'm ready. I'm ready to die for you. Then a woman comes up to Peter and asks, you're not one of the man's disciples, are you? Moment of truth. All the chips are down. I'm ready to die for you. Except that's not what Peter says. He says, no, I'm not. And then he cowered by the fire with some servants and guards. But he couldn't even hide there because one of them asked the same question. You're not one of the disciples, are you? You're one of the disciples. No, I'm not. Finally, one of the household slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had just cut off, said, hey, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? You're a follower. You're with Jesus, right? 
again, no. And a rooster crows. And the man who said he'd follow Jesus anywhere, the man who swung a sword for Jesus, the man who said he'd die for Jesus, said three times, I am not with him. What a spectacular failure. For three years, he'd been with Jesus, and when it mattered most, he threw it all away. John doesn't give us Peter's reaction, but the other Gospels tell us that Peter broke down and wept bitterly. He broke down and he wept bitterly. And here comes the shame. You call yourself a disciple? You're pathetic. You turn your back on your best friend, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're worthless. I've always been tempted to compare Peter with Judas in this moment. Their actions are not equivalent. Judas betrays, Peter denies, and those are not the same things. But they both had horrible nights, and they both suffered personal anguish, and they both failed Jesus. And for Judas, it was too much. Shame took over and told him that he was unworthy of love and of connection, and he gave in to that despair, and he took his own life that night. But that's not what happened to Peter. It was his worst moment. And shame said, you have disqualified yourself. You have no right to connection. You have no right to love. You are horrible, and you've ruined everything. But something made his story different. What was different about Peter's story? Shame says, hide, run, and Peter chose to stay. Peter chose to stay with his friends. In John 20, when Mary comes running from Jesus' tomb with the shocking news that his body is gone, she knows where to find Peter because he stayed with the disciples. In chapter 21, when we see him with the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, he's there because he decided to stay with them. Despite his shame, Peter stayed. Even though he denied Jesus, he knew he still had a place at the table and he took it. My instinct after bombing at the wedding was to get out of there as soon as possible. So I left straight after the ceremony. I did not stay for the reception. I didn't mingle or dance or feast. I left alone. And the shame voices in my head bombarded me for hours on that drive. I wonder how different it would have been had I chosen to stay. I mean, a community is there celebrating love and commitment and marriage and grace in Jesus, and I ran away from it. Peter messed up, but he didn't run away. He stayed. And because he stayed, here's what happened that day on the Sea of Galilee. For some time after the resurrection, we don't exactly know how far after, but the disciples are out on a boat and they're fishing, and they notice a man on the shore. And suddenly they realize that is the Lord, the Jesus. He's alive. He's resurrected. He's here, right there on the shore. And Peter is not going to wait for the boat to turn around. Peter jumps out of the boat, and he swims to shore to be with the man that he denied. Think about that. There's a version of the story where Peter ducks down in the back of the boat, hiding, anxious, afraid to even meet the eyes of his Savior. But that's not what he does. He chooses connection here. He leaps out of the boat so that he can get close to Jesus. When the others get the boat to shore, the fire is hot and the breakfast is ready. And after the meal, Jesus asks Peter a question. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? There's some debate over what Jesus means by these here in the sentence, but he probably is asking, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Do you love me more than these other ones around here love me? You see, Jesus knows Peter's pressure point. We talked about this last week. 
Peter wants to be the best disciple, the closest follower. And Jesus is offering Peter the chance to compare himself to the others. Do you love me more than these ones do, Peter? But Peter had changed. His answer isn't comparative at all. He responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He doesn't even address the more than these part. He just says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. It's not Peter brave and bold. It's not Peter boasting. It's not Peter chest-thumping. It's a simple answer. It's a humble answer. It's an answer born, I think, out of the fact that when the chips were down, he failed, and he no longer considers himself above the others. Yes, Lord, you know. So Jesus asks him again, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know. I love you. And again, do you love me? This time, the text tells us that Peter was hurt, and the word is grieved, sorrowful, even distressed in his soul. He's hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. I mean, once, yeah, of course. Twice, okay, fine. But three times? Three times? It could only mean one thing. It meant that Jesus knew. Jesus knew about Peter's three denials. Three questions to match three denials. And here's the thing. I don't think three times is for Jesus' sake. I think three times is for Peter's sake. Three times is to defeat the power of shame in Peter's life. Three times was so that Peter knew that Christ's grace was sufficient for all of his failures. Three times is for Peter to know that there's nothing that he can say or do that will make Jesus run away from him. Three times is for Peter to know that he was fully forgiven. Three times was an invitation for Peter not to just be forgiven, but to be restored to full fellowship, to be restored to do what Jesus was going to ask him to do, which was feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It's interesting, the task that Jesus sets before Peter in these verses, is there, it's not a title, it's not the title of bishop, it's not the title of leader. The thing that Jesus asked him to do, they're verbs. He says, Peter, tend the sheep, feed, follow, tend and feed and follow. You know, I don't think Peter got to lead the others because he was the best disciple or he was the best of the followers on the shore that day. He was actually probably the worst, right? He just denied Jesus three times. But he got to lead because Jesus restored him. He got to lead because he knew grace now. He knew forgiveness. He knew the depth of love now. So restoration, not failure, was the defining moment of Peter's life. And never again would he run from Jesus. For the rest of Peter's life, when people associate him with Christ, he says, yes, I am with him, all the way to his grave. Now, Peter still has really bad days going forward from here, which I find pretty encouraging. He got into some really intense fights with Paul about different theological points. He did not fully understand that God loved the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the whole world as much as God loved the Jews. He still failed after this moment. But after the restoration, he knew that none of his failures could separate him from Jesus. You have your own worst days, your own worst thoughts, your worst moments, and shame will tell you to run away from people and to hide from them. But like Peter, you can leap out of the boat and choose connection and choose to be restored. And that is the path of our healing, the path to freedom. It is community, and it is honesty, and it is words of grace. It is community with one another to stay in community and it's honesty about what we've, what we've done and our failures and our fears and then it's to hear the words of grace of Jesus. Unfortunately, I don't see this very often. 
we tend to keep our worst moments inside, maybe, maybe <laughs> privately confessing them to God, but really hiding them from each other. And when we do share something about our lives, we share very generally, tip of the iceberg kind of stuff. And then we lament that our church relationships are kind of surfacey and fake. I want us here at Haverhill Commons to cultivate confessional relationships. Confessional relationships. I want each of us to have a person or a group of people with whom we can be honest. And this person needs to be a person that we trust, who we know isn't going to abandon us or condemn us or look at us with shock and horror. And maybe it's our best friend or our partner or a mentor. I think it also needs to be someone who follows Jesus. So more on that in a second. If you do not have a person or a group like that in your life, if you're surveying your world and you're like, I actually don't know who that person might be for me, I want you to know that we here are willing to be that person for you, that I am willing to be that kind of person for you, that Katie and Marcus are willing to be that kind of person for you, that all the members of our, of our advisory council, Gary and Rachel and Amy and Megan and Drew, they are willing to be that kind of person for you. You don't have to be alone. You don't have to be alone. And when you have your person or your people, pray for the courage to be honest, and not in a general way, we can all say, we've all sinned, right? Or, I've made some mistakes, or I've had my struggles. But be honest about the specifics of your story. Name your failures, name your shame, name what keeps you down. Peter's failure was pretty specific, wasn't it? And Jesus' response and restoration of Peter was pretty specific. I think we need to be that kind of specific, to be honest with our fears and our failures, with our secrets, with our scars. Maybe not everything all at once in one conversation. But over time, dare to trust the members of this community who love you and who are with you and who will remind you of the words of restoration that Jesus has spoken. That is, by the way, why it's important for the person to follow Jesus. This person is not a therapist. They are not a professional. They're not offering you expertise that they've learned in school. They're not trying to help you navigate your relationships or your emotions or relationships. That's not this person's job. This person is a member of the body of Christ. That's their qualification. What they offer is their presence and their willingness to receive what you share and the words that God has already given us. All right, so I'm going to flip the script on this whole conversation so far. I've been talking all about the things we do when we share, right? But I actually think it's also important for us to develop the skill of listening. To listen to someone else's story with compassion and grace is hard. Receiving an honest confession is super challenging. We want so badly not to mess it up, and we have so little training in how to not mess it up. So I want to give you a few ideas on listening well. It might seem a little bit wooden to have something this structured, but like I said, we're not very good at this. So maybe structure is exactly what we need. This is not a formula, but it is a five-step guideline, which is very different than a formula, right? <laughs> Maybe it's the same, I don't know. I'm going to put them up on the screen here in a second. If you want, um, we have these communication cards in the pews. They have blanks on the back, so if you want to write anything down, here are five steps, five suggestions, five little points of a structure that you might take with you this morning. And if you don't want to write anything down, you can email me later, and I can give you all these five points again. Ready? Here we go. First, as you receive someone's story, first thing you do is you pray for a grace-filled spirit 
This might even be just like an internal prayer that you give yourself when you like know this is happening. Like, well, I'm going to pause in my own mind and pray this prayer that God would give me a grace-filled spirit so that my posture and my expressions and my words would be non-anxious as I listen. If we're communicating judgment or shock, then we're actually just reinforcing the shame the person probably already feels into the conversation. So listen gracefully. Be okay with stretches of silence in a conversation. Don't interrupt what they're saying. Patiently receive what the other person is sharing with grace. Next, acknowledge that you have heard what has been said. Acknowledge the courage that it took for this person to share with you their story. You might say something like, thank you for sharing this with me. Thank you for trusting me with this. I'm with you. At this point, it's pretty tempting to offer advice, right? And you can ask if they want advice, and they might say yes, but most of the time, people want someone to listen to them. I've also learned that I am usually not smart enough or wise enough to fix the situation anyway. I have found that instead of coming up with my own words of wisdom to make someone feel better, it's actually much more helpful to repeat what God has already said and already done in Jesus. So we offer not our own words, but step three, we offer God's words of restoration. And they can be words like this out of Isaiah 43. Listen to the Lord who created you. Listen to the one who formed you. Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. When you go through the deep waters, I'm with you. Or they could be words like 2 Corinthians 12. God's grace is all you need. And God's power works best in weakness. Or John 8, you have been forgiven, Jesus says. You have been forgiven. Go and sin no more. These are God's words, not our words. Then, I think we're at four. <laughs> it might be a good idea to ask the person if you can check in with them in about a week. I think sometimes we're like super vulnerable, and then we just never talk about it again. But ask if you can check in with them in about a week, if that would be okay with them. And then actually check in with them in about a week, right? That's nothing worse than actually like not following through on that request. But check in with them. How are you doing? How's it going? You shared a lot last week. How's that, how are you processing? I'm with you. And then finally, as the conversation is coming to a close, you might pray a short prayer of restoration. Jesus, we belong to you. In you, we're new people. The old life has gone and the new life has begun. Heal us that we might live. Amen. Right? Short prayer of restoration. I think it's really important to hear these words, to hear God's words, because they speak truth to shame's lies. We need to hear them out loud, I think, from another real person, because it's so hard to actually believe them ourselves. So we need to hear them. Yeah, sure, we can read them on our own. You can read them in your Bibles. Or you can listen to me say them from the front. But on our own, is very close to hiding. On our own is very close to keeping it private. On our own is very close to running and to pretending. There is power in hearing a member of the body of Christ say in response to our confessions that the grace of Jesus is greater. Greater than all the sin and all the shame and all the failure. And we need to hear that. We need to hear it. One time. Two times three times, so that we actually believe it. There are three weeks, believe it or not, between now and Easter morning, 
And between now and then, I encourage you to take a step in this direction. If you already have a confessional friendship, amazing. I have a few friends with whom I share very deeply. If not, then I challenge you to ask someone to be your person and to share with that person one thing, one thing that you have been carrying in your life, one thing that tells you that you don't deserve love, one thing that lies and says you don't deserve connection. And I encourage you to share that thing with someone. Friends, we are sinners. And friends, Christ forgives. Come, be healed, and live again. Amen? Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with a lot. We are complicated and messy creatures. We fail, we are flawed, we make mistakes, we have hurt others, we have been hurt by others. We have scars. We have secrets. And all of those things, Lord, contribute to our sense of self. So I pray, Jesus, that you would free us and release us from the bondage that shame has in our lives, that you would give us the courage and the boldness to reach out to someone in the next three weeks and to share just one piece of our story. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, if we are on the receiving end of someone's story, to receive their story with grace and compassion and understanding and love, to know that we too are sinners and to know that your grace is sufficient for everything. Jesus, we thank you that when we run and when we deny and when we hide, that you do not. That you stay and you remain and you call our name and you welcome us in. Let us have the courage to believe you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.